Hello, welcome to the edited version of Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version of this conversation, then you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles and become one of our Patreon supporters, uh, which you can do for as little as $1 an episode. That's one US dollar, and obviously it will depend on which of our economies is declining more, uh, how much that actually works out in pounds, uh, euros, etc. Hello, a quick advert before the show. My book, I'm a Joke and So Are You, is out now in bookshops and also I will be touring around the UK. In fact, I am touring around the UK at the moment every single day until the 17th of December, so I may well be coming to a town near you. Hello, welcome to this week's episode of Book Shambles, another one where Natalie Haynes is subbing in for Josie Long. And just to let you know that we have recorded a whole bunch of new episodes with Robin and Josie back in the studio together. So they will be coming out very soon. Although next week we are going to have uh, a recording from the I'm a Joke and So Are You launch. So that will include uh, Robin on stage chatting to Philippa Perry and Stuart Lee. Plus uh, might even be a little bit of Grace Petrie and Josie Long in that. And, of course, you can catch both of them at Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People at King's Place in December. There are still a couple of tickets left for that, not many at all. So get in quick if you want to get the last few remaining seats for those events on December 14, 15, 19 and 20. And a reminder that at those events, as well as at the Christmas Compendium gig at Hammersmith Apollo this Saturday, we will be collecting for the Trussell Trust. Uh, And when we say collecting, we mean uh, food and household items, not uh, monetary donations, or there will be a tin there as well. So if you go to cosmicshambles.com slash nine lessons, you'll see a list of what the most urgently needed items are on that website. Stuff like tinned fruit, tinned vegetables, uh, men's shaving uh, accessories. So check that out and uh, bring something along to donate if you can. If you're coming to Hammersmith, there will be a mobile food bank uh, out the front of the venue. And if you come to Nine Lessons, there'll be a big uh, Trussell Trust area by the bookstall and merchandise stand. And just before we start this week's episode, thanks again, as always, to our Patreon supporters. You can go to patreon.com slash bookshambles to join in there and pledge to help keep the show and everything at Cosmic Shambles running. Now, here's this week's episode, uh, Robin and Natalie Haynes chatting to author Jason Heller. I've got a week which is Bristol, Edinburgh, Toronto, Folkestone. Oh. And it's because the people at Folkestone Literary Festival are so nice. That, that's not so the... I could have had two days in Toronto. Yeah. But yeah. So, that's hello. not the sore thumb in that story, Robin, just so you know. It's so Toronto no. is the sore thumb. No, Toronto's the dream. Toronto's mm. a day off, technically, because I'm just sat on a plane. That's a day off. <laughs> I don't drink wine and everything. Uh, hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Uh, today, the part of Josie Long is played by Natalie Haynes, hello. the author and classicist and deliverer of recent Virgil lecture. <laughs> uh, and we're joined... Someone whose book I... I uh, this book I read ages ago now because uh, I can't even remember how I found out that it existed. I must have been, it must have been on Twitter or whatever, and it was just the moment that I saw it. I thought, oh, I like this. Uh, we're joined by Jason Heller, whose latest book is called Strange Stars, and it is uh, it's a book that will take you a lot of time, not in the reading, but the fact that at the end of every chapter you then have to go to listen to every single reference point 
in it. It's a book with a beautiful bit of synchronicity because it's a book about science fiction and its influence on pop music. And the day the book arrived, I also bought a package of books where I had no idea what was inside them. And inside was Time of the Hawk Lords, the uh, Michael Moorcock, or perhaps not Michael Moorcock, novelisation uh, in which Hawkwind are the heroes, including Lemmy, uh, during that <laughs> incarnation. So Strange Stars... Um, well, let's start off. It's 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 basically bookended by it's pretty much starts with Space Oddity and it kind of ends with Ashes to Ashes. Yeah, the entire idea of the book uh, was to find a way to not make it some dry, sprawling encyclopedia of science fiction's influence on music. Uh, a for my own sake and for the sake of anyone who might be interested in the topic but not interested in reading an encyclopedia. I was looking for a narrative uh, somewhere in this sprawling mess of wonderful music that has been made that draws inspiration from science fiction. Um, David Bowie was always going to be kind of the flashpoint, the center point of this. Uh, the more I thought about how I could contain his story of his overlap with science fiction, the more I realized kind of the best way to do that would be to talk about Space Oddity in 1969. Ashes to Ashes, which is, of course, the sequel song uh, featuring Major Tom, the character from Space Oddity, came out in 1980. Perfectly sandwiched in the middle are the 1970s, which I figured was going to be a way to contain this story, but also a really fun way to dive a little bit deeper into some of the really amazing and varied types of musicians who drew on science fiction in many times completely different ways as there were so many incredible sea changes in the world of music during that decade. Will you, I mean, your start with kind of the Bowie story is, uh, it's interesting because as a teenager, you, know, you can get older and realise that the, your favourite albums were, were shit. Uh, and with Bowie, I think, you know, a lot of my least favourite Bowie albums, I remember buying Tonight at the time and not realising that Tonight is one of his worst albums. It has some really terrible things on it. Uh, but it had a Gilbert and George cover and it was kind of like it was a new <laughs> Bowie album. So as a 16-year-old, it didn't matter. And then you go, oh, now I realise. And you, you know, you're, you start off talking about you went to the Glass Spider tour, which, of course, was tremendously derided by, uh, you know, the, the various cynical uh, music press hacks uh, uh, of of the 1980s. But for you as a teenager... Yeah, as a teenager, it was my first concert I ever went to was seeing Bowie uh, in my hometown of Denver. Uh, so that was 1987, the Glass Spider Tour. I was a Bowie fan, and it was not something I walked into with uh, th this kind of idea of how can I possibly pull this apart or apply a critical eye to it. That you know, Of course, that comes later, uh, especially as I became a music journalist. I entered as a fan, uh, and I entered as someone who had already begun to feel a, a, a certain uh, sympathy with the idea of science fiction and music and the fantastic and the weird all being sort of mixed together in Bowie's work and in others. So during those teenage years, I came to get an experience. I came to see David Bowie on the Glass Spider Tour hoping that I would get some bit of that grandiosity uh, and of that otherworldliness that I had been getting getting from his music on record for so long. And that is what I got, and then some. Uh, and all the things that the Glass Spider Tour has uh, 
been continuously derided for by critics. Critics love to pick that out every once in a while as like, oh, you think Bowie's so great. Don't forget Glass Spider Tour. Um, and I don't forget it because it was an amazing experience. It was, you know, you've got a 60-foot uh, spider uh, hovering over the stage. I Bowie, could never see that. Bo Bowie, <laughs> never ever see that. Bowie being lowered in, in, in a chair for you know, uh, doing spoken word from it. You know, the first five minutes of it alone are are an incredible experience. The thing about, and I actually wrote an essay about this for the Atlantic recently. That was a bit of a defense uh, of the Glass Spider tour and of that whole era. Is I was looking uh, at that in hindsight as one more period in Bowie's life and career where he reconnected with these themes and ideas and images of science fiction and the fantastic that he would periodically return to. Um, and, of course, that cycle of him coming back to that ultimately uh, became his swan song with Black Star, uh, you know, which came out, of course, right before he died in 2016. So I wanted to, yes, take a little bit of my memories uh, and, and my recollections of that feeling uh, of awe uh, that I had seeing Bowie on the Glass Spider tour and apply that to his earlier career and also to the careers and works of so many other great musicians of the 70s. See, I think his worked out better because I think, I mean, what I would love is I would love to have been one of those people who, to have been old enough for Bowie to be this, you know, when you read, I've mentioned a few times on this podcast, I don't know if you've read it yet, David Bowie Made Me Gay, which is a fantastic book and it has, in the introduction, it has a lot of different musicians saying that moment that we saw, and not merely musicians, but in the same way that, oddly enough, something like Doctor Who, I think, was was very useful to people who, you know, in terms of alternative culture, in terms of sexuality, all of those things. And I would love it. You know, instead I had Morrissey, because I'm of that generation. And, you know, Mor Bowie got rid of his kind of fascism by the 70s, whereas <laughs> Morrissey grew into it. So, you know, that's not ended great for my... I'm I don't so know if we're, sorry, Are we allowed Robin. to say that? I don't know. Oh, no, it's made more space on my shelves. I, I no longer I require those records. It's it's OK. But, yeah, Bowie, I mean, I, I think his story as well, when you come back to that, that the work from, I think, Outside Album... Oh, absolutely. That's almost why the 80s now seems a bit more rubbish. Mm -hmm. It's just you go, whoa! I don't, black tie, white noise, I know critically people would like it, but I think Outside, from that point onwards... It's really exciting. I love you album. bring that up because as I have been doing, uh, I've been on tour for this book here since it came out in June, and it has been, Outside has been one of the albums that comes up in conversation most often with the audiences, with the people who come to my book signings. Um, it doesn't fall under the purview of Strange Stars because, you know, as I said, my book kind of ends in the early 80s. But as people want to continue that discussion, Outside comes up very often and rightfully so, you know, as one of those later works that didn't make that much. You know, none of Bowie's work in the 90s made that much uh, of an impact to a lot of people uh, at the time. You know, none of it was where he, none of them were huge sellers. Um, he was doing a lot of experiments and interesting uh, uh, tangents during that decade. And I love his 90s work because in so many ways there were uh, returns or, or acknowledgments of what he had done before. But he wasn't just recycling his work or his ideas. Uh, you know, he was finding a way to take them and reinterpret them uh, and mutate them uh, for 
what was swiftly becoming, you know, the end of the 20th century and this whole kind of idea of the future as we imagined it in science fiction novels and TV shows and movies for so long or in song in Bowie's case, um, that future really is right on our doorstep. Uh, and that acceleration uh, of the end of the decade, I think, is one of the things that really underpins outside so many of, uh, even Earthling, an album that a lot of people uh, also don't give a whole lot of credit to, but it, but is one of his 90s albums that, that I uh, have a lot of fun with still. Um, and, you know, th that's really what I wanted to do with Strange Stars was put things in that kind of context. David Bowie's work, especially since he died, has been, of course, re-examined exhaustively as it should be. But I really wanted to find some kind of a different framework to look at it than, um, than has already been used so often. I think that, you know, just statistically speaking, as you get older, and I'm in my 40s now, that I'm going to have to get used to the fact that more and more of the people who are heroes uh, and icons and, and building blocks uh, in a lot of ways of who I am are going to be passing uh, as the years go by. And of course, that's only going to accelerate. Um, and that's already begun. But with Bowie passing, it was and the fa the timing of it, you know, that really was it can't be said enough how much Black Star coming out and Bowie dying almost immediately after almost seems to fulfill some kind of prescribed fictional plot line right. that you couldn't have written something that that would be more uh, dramatically effective or poignant than that. Uh, and then, of course, the whole idea that you're going to go back and listen to Black Star anew with the, you know, the, the lens on uh, of... Well, this was Bowie's swan song, and he knew it. Uh, and then what can we decode? You know, I grew up uh, as a little kid in the 70s. My mom loved rock and roll. It was in our household constantly. And she was one of those people that sat around with her friends, got high, and talked about the mysteries that can be decoded, you know, Don McLean's American Pie. What is it? What does it really <laughs> mean? What does it mean? I remember being five years. I think it was when I was five when, uh, and I lived in Florida at the time when Leonard Skinner's plane crashed, and it was, look at all the album covers, listen to all the songs. Did they know, <laughs> or is this a hoax? It was every conspiracy theory fueled by marijuana that you could think of that might somehow help explain uh, or just help you cope with the fact that an artist you love has suddenly died. Um, I miss the days when conspiracy theories were reserved for musicians <laughs> yes. It was a golden time, it now turns out. Seriously, yeah. seriously. There's a great book that just came out actually uh, called uh, Pale Horse, Pale Rider about William Cooper, the uh, uh, American wingnut conspiracy theorist who wrote Behold a Pale Horse mm -hmm. uh, and how his underground book uh, kind of helped uh, cement uh, the infrastructure of conspiracy theories as we know them now, especially in the States, to the point now where conspiracy theories are a mainstream right. political tool. Mm.
uh, not to go off on a tangent. Can I ask you a slightly personal question since you've yeah. gone off on a tangent anyway? Is your owl from Clash of the Titans? Yes, yeah, so one of the tattoos... Not a sentence tattoos, I was yeah. ever expecting to say out loud, but I enjoyed it enormously. I like it when the illustrated man of Ray Bradbury's story is actually entirely illustrated by, <laughs> by Ray Harryhausen. Titans, yeah. That's the way I like to see it. It's Boobo, yes, right? it is Boobo. Because you're saying in the slight shadow, I, are you slightly impressed that I could identify him? Yes, yes no, no. Uh, classicist, you see. Yeah. Ray Harryhausen, classicist. Yeah, the best kind. Yes. <laughs> and I've been a huge Harryhausen fan since I was a kid. And Clash of the Titans, you know, one of the big important movies it to really me is. as a kid. Uh, not just be, for Harryhausen's work, but just for fantasy cinema in general. And yes, so this tattoo is of Bubo, uh, the Clockwork Owl, um, which I still want to own more than I can easily put into words. Isn't I want Bo- that owl? Isn't Bubo the real? protagonist the real hero of clash of the titans i am completely there for you with this and and think about it too we're talking about you know something that is based on greek myth here so there's not exactly how we here now in the modern uh narrative tradition think of protagonists with agency there's a lot of people who are simply tools of prophecy or fate enacting their roles bubo totally character invented he's like the one character with yes yes and i always you know he a lot of uh, uh, people scoffed and, and called him the attempt at R2-D2 or Nonsense. Ewoks. It Nonsense. was, yeah, of Clash of the Titans, a way to, to market to children. And if so, it worked. I was a child at the time, and I I'd identified with Boobo. I, I genuinely think, think, sorry. I think it, sorry, no, go on. No, I was going to say, I think it's, I use it as a, a measure when I give talks sometimes on um, whatever bit of Greek myth I'm talking about at the time. Um, I use it as a perfect illustration of what slightly has gone wrong with Hollywood, um, is that Harry Hamlin is by no stretch of anyone's imagination as built as Sam Worthington, who, of course, um, played in the remake. Um, And yet, if you have to pick who is the most attractive of those two people, it's Harry Hamlin all day long. I do not want the muscle-bound man who can't act. I would like the less muscle-bound man who can act and who has a really cool clockwork owl, is what I would like. Yeah, I generally, most of those around that period of time, most of the remakes of stuff seem to have lost nuance and... I was thinking that I watched RoboCop again, the original, the other day, mm. which is still one of my favourite films. And you go, wow, the, the remake is aged already yeah. and has also missed out, even though now that film is more pertinent in terms of what it's looking at. Oh, yes. It manages not to deal with any of that sort of thing. Total Recall, all of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, Wrath of the Titans, genuinely baffling to me. My degree is in classics and I don't know what's happening. And it's like <laughs> the, the gods need people to believe in them. You go, okay, if I say I believe in Zeus... Is that a good thing? I don't understand. Is it like Tinkerbell? I don't understand what's going on. <laughs> the, we better talk a little bit about the book. Um, Sorry, I got sidetracked. No, not at all. Excellent. No, owl. no, it's a great. The myth is is, is good. At, I mean, you know, they, well, we're talking about fantasy fiction and science fiction and its influence on. Uh, I mean, really, I do just want to talk about Bowie because now now you're here and it, it was such a that far. I, I, when you talked about the critics getting, I, I remember when the uh, Where Are We Now came out and there were a lot of snotty little pieces and people would say things like, "Yeah, but if this wasn't Bowie," and you go, "Yeah, but you can't remove that." It's like when people get. I've, I've talked about this before, but when Chris Christopherson played Glastonbury last year, there were he was slightly off and stuff, and people were saying these really snotty things. And you're going, yeah, but he's Chris he's Christopherson. Chris Christopherson he fine. carries with him that you know. When I yeah. saw him live at the Union Chapel, he sang the same song twice because he obviously looked down at his his set list, started again. Do you know what? It was a good song. I didn't care. He's Chris Christopherson. He's 82 years old. He's on stage on his own with a guitar. People carry their history with yeah, them, it and it's not like you go, well, Bowie's always been given a free pass because, as we know, the 80s and for a lot of the 90s. 
90s. He wasn't. I still cherish a review. I can't remember in what, but I'm going to say Time Out because I think it's that sort of era um, of a new Tom Waits record. That's really how old I am. Um, saying the problem is, oh, not quite as old. The problem is it sounds a bit dated now because Beck and people have done it. And you go, yeah, but that's because Tom Waits had already done it. You can't blame Tom Waits for Beck having done a thing like Tom Waits. He's Tom Waits. I was right in my green egg. I didn't, obviously, because I have hobbies. But um, yes, it still makes me cross. It's like you can't blame an, art, an iconic artist for other artists paying homage to them. That's just absurd. And you certainly can't blame them for getting older. And also, where are we now? It's fucking great. I saw Leonard so. Cohen have his, his last record played in a room with um, Jarvis Cocker interviewing him because I was reviewing it. Again, like I say, I'm in no way qualified. It's such to a have. great album. But just, it's like, let's just sit here with Leonard Cohen listening to Leonard Cohen's record and you can say anything you want you can do anything you want we would all, if you just sat here in silence we would that would be completely fine because you're Leonard freaking Cohen I uh, saw Nina Simone in concert in the early 2000s oh and it was another instance of exactly what you're talking about was she uh as in tune vocally, and of course, uh, you know, uh, as we know, you know, the, the last couple decades of her life weren't last, well, much of her life wasn't exactly happy times or no. healthy times. But for her to be in her 70s at that point um, and doing, uh, projecting uh, and inhabiting uh uh, her body and her space in the way that she did and her legend uh, and that she it isn't so much her playing the piano and singing yeah that was there and some of it sounded great and some of it sounded not as great but that wasn't the point you know what i mean the point was you were there in the same room yeah breathing the same air with a woman who is a is living history yeah uh and you uh are getting uh, you you're getting to receive you have the privilege of receiving whatever it is that she and it doesn't mean you go in uncritically and just like whatever and you say she sang in key when she didn't but uh, you know anyone who goes to see someone sing in key and is disappointed when they don't i, I would have a problem understanding how they are even music fans in any real yes. way in the first place i remember when i saw arthur lee uh when he came when he was out of prison uh yeah but you see i didn't see nina simone so and, and do you know what that would have been in the same room because not the one you saw but nick cave's meltdown which we've talked about before look on on the internet for the brilliant picture of nick cave in his specs with a great big beaming smile next to nina simone who looks fucking powerful and it's just amazing <laughs> and and the whole story of her walking on stage sticking her gum on the side of the steinway and then fighting the piano till they became one is beautiful but watching arthur lee doing you know fantastic beautiful set of that and then he kind of goes i think i'm doing my best songs now here's a new song and as the guy who played the bagpipes came out i thought i don't think it will be his best song but i've still just seen arthur lee you know and that's and it was a, and it was so sad that you know just when he was really certainly in the uk he was really building ahead of steam here and uh, some amazing stuff. Um, so, Strange Stars. Uh, we're out of time now, uh, but let's get on to your book. Um, I, I just, there's so much that, I mean, on every subject, there's so much I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm increasingly aware of my ignorance every day. Uh, and if I wasn't, then I'd be doing something wrong, I suppose. Uh, but the stories, I mean, because it's a fascinating, first of all, Heinlein and Asimov are a lot in the start, and then towards the end, Dick comes a lot more. There's a lot more Philip K. Dick and there's a lot, you know, J.G. Ballard. And it's such, a, considering it only takes 10 years, going from Jimi Hendrix to Gary Newman, it's a, this is an incredible tree of 
the mixture of science fiction and mysticism that, that goes on. What what for you was what was the start beyond Bowie? What's the starting point where you go right? Because Hendrix is pretty early on, and I'd not realised quite how much of a uh, science fiction influence there was in his work. Yeah, there was absolutely. So as I mentioned, the book starts uh, in mostly in '69 uh, with Space Oddity, ending in 1980 with Ashes to Ashes. Um, but it does go a little bit earlier and a little bit later to kind of provide a little uh, uh, prelude and afterward to it. And Hendrix. Um, is incredibly important to the early part of the story, as are the birds, Jefferson Airplane. What really set things off um, were two things that were completely not musical in any way, shape, or form, which are, well, one of them is kind of musical in a way, shape, or form, which is Kubrick's 2001 A Space Oddity in 1968, uh, and then, of course, the Apollo 11 moon landing uh, in 1969, which... David Bowie's Space Oddity was, you know, time to coincide with. What really set things off was the idea that there was going to be music that could not only be progressive in the way it's arranged and played and the technology that's being used, but narratively that there needed to be as vast of a backdrop as could possibly be conceived um, to tell bigger and bigger stories or convey larger and larger themes, ideas, philosophies in music, that wound up being outer space. Uh, that wound up being science fiction. And it took the fact that a year before the moon landing, Kubrick had established so compellingly this idea of outer space as a metaphor uh, in a way that that no filmmaker and even no author had really been able to convey as immediately the idea of outer space as a symbol for so many things, for God, for eternity, for inner space, for the psyche, um, for the unknown, all, all these things that came together uh, so poetically in Kubrick's work, those were the things that David Bowie and so many other artists at that time realized we're going to be the perfect match with these newly progressive uh, structures uh, and arrangements of music um, that that era of, of rock and roll was beginning to open up. But as things progressed throughout the 70s, there are other uh, developments and touchstones. You know, the fact that the awe and reassessment of civilization and humanity and identity that came with the moon landing in 1969 um, inevitably and maybe more quickly than a lot of people realized turned into a kind of uh, blasé cynicism. Sometimes I almost think it was just too much for people to really deal with. It was like, okay, why don't we, we're just going to, we're going to downsize this awe. We're going to turn it into a political football. We're going to talk about the dollars and cents and uh, boil things down to, do we pay for a man on Mars or do we pay to, uh, you know, feed the hungry and, and, and put it on that kind of a scale so that we as humans can actually manage that, it, it, you know, with, with this limited nervous system we have to deal with things like this. Because by the early 70s, you know, a lot of the space program, um, a lot of the reaction to it had become one of disillusionment uh, and wasn't so much, wow, we're going to the moon again. It was, 
Oh, we're going to the moon again? Mm-hmm. See, that's what I find. I always find that. I, I did a space show at the Albert Hall in uh, in July, and we had Rusty Schweikart on from Apollo 9. And I've, I've met Charlie Duke as well. And, and that's what you always think is, how was it over so quickly in terms of public imagination? How right. did it, as you mentioned in the book, you know, when, when was it Apollo? I can't remember which Apollo mission it was. It breaks up a little bit of the Super Bowl. And, and it's like kind of, ah, God, guys on the moon. And, and yet you're just watching the Super Bowl again, though. This is going on the whole, you know, this is, but, and it's a really, I, I still find that very hard, you know, and then, of course, the mistakes that were made because, well, things like Challenger, when we find out why that accident happened. And it happened really because of business, because of, Christ, we've got to get this thing up now. We've got to keep this going and mistakes are made. And that's, uh, but it's, yeah, I I don't really understand how so quickly it goes from the whole family gathered around to going in the moon again. Yeah, yeah. And the the way that that kind of filtered into uh, the public consciousness in so many ways and really, you know, the fact that there were a lot of very legitimate, you know, economic downturns and concerns that people were having at the time, which is, you know, immediately the first thing you're going to see, what is the most conspicuous uh, expenditure of a lot of money going on? And that is going to be the space program. Um, but when it came to the music that was going on, it it was a period, and of course Bowie encapsulates this uh, so perfectly in his shift from uh, Ziggy Stardust in 1972 to Diamond Dogs in 1974, two science fiction concept albums. But by 1974, the idea of singing about uh, the wonder and dazzle and mystery uh, and intrigue of outer space had all of a sudden become what was a, the the new trend in a particularly science fiction cinema, which was here on Earth in the gritty, grimy, uh, dystopian uh, future, near future in some cases, what are we dealing with here and now? Rather than projecting ourselves into outer space, how about we just kind of look at the day after tomorrow mm-hmm. and how miserable things might be? Lovely and, Charlton Heston. Yes. And it, Planet of the Apes, Soylent yep. Green, yep. a yep. Mega Man. Yep. Yep. And so at that point, it, Logan's Run, you know, it, God, it I love Logan's Run. Yeah. And it, and some great movies, some a really amazing, uh, uh, you know, stretch of uh, science fiction cinema right there. But at the same time, there was uh, a rejection of by many science fiction influenced artists of the idea of singing about the grandeur and the wonder. And it can be traced to a lot of things. You know, there's a lot of the end of idealism, right, of Mm -hmm. the 60s uh, that is setting in by the early to mid 70s. And and part of it is is simply being swept up in that kind of uh, downward spiral. Um, but of course, Star Wars came along in 1977 and sort of blew that out of the water completely. And that's a huge turning point. Strange Stars is structured more or less year by year throughout the 70s. And the 1977 chapter in there is the the big turning point in the book, um, because not only is it when uh, Star Wars comes out, um, it is the time when punk rock uh, completely uh, rewrites the rules uh, or chucks them in in the garbage can of rock music. Uh, and what winds up happening is, and I hope I convey this with enough 
passion and enough uh, 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 enough of a solid argument that really it's disco more than anything else that winds up becoming this amazingly fertile and dominant and relevant futuristic music uh, circa 1977. And that really it's disco and post-punk then throughout the rest of the 70s um, that truly carry the day, whereas before that it was, you know, mostly glam and, and, and progressive rock. Uh, and then, of course, you have George Clinton in there who is kind of glam, progressive, funk, uh, everything all rolled into one. You know, he it, like Parliament is – and the fact that Mothership Connection, the Parliament album came out in the dead middle of the 70s in 1975 – that is, to me, uh, the absolute nexus uh, of all of this uh, is is George Clinton's parliament. It's the Rosetta Stone of of seventies science fiction music, as far as I'm concerned. And it, an incredibly important album in so many ways, but also in the sense that it was the first popularization, really across the board, uh, in a major way of Afrofuturism in popular music in, in the popular consciousness. Well, also, you're wearing your Sun Ra t-shirt today, and, and you talk about that film, The Space Space is the Place, yes. which is... Have you ever seen Space is the I Place? I think I have. I, I saw it by chance. I was in Oslo, and they had a kind of futurist exhibition in, in what was their modern art gallery, which I think is possibly closed now. And uh, I was with Josie, and we were wandering around, and then suddenly went, what the hell's this? And it's such a weird film, because it's kind of quite a low-budget film to be also about space. So it, it's got a certain uh, intriguing clunkiness, but a great intention behind it, isn't it? And the, you know, the Sun Ra and, and, and orchestra is a, is a fascinating uh, bit of that history as well. Um, we're nearly out of time already. So I was uh, now one thing I love the story. Two thousand and one. Th- these uh, which I've fortunately not really seen on the big screen, but IMAX. But that bit of all these different musicians getting stoned or taking mushrooms, and, and there's that great story of the guy who who just runs and leaps through the screen. I can't remember what he shouts. What is it? He shouts as he sees the light, and it's oh, oh right, right, right. Oh boy. Yeah, yeah, sorry, so I've been reading. It, it literally just came back to me because yeah. I said, I, I, it, it, but there's a bit where just everyone's like, oh, you know, it's, it's uh, <laughs> still a great, so the Sentinel is still a great story, I think. Uh, the, uh, it is, the Clark um, original story, yeah. Futurama Festival in Leeds, which is a fascinating thing where you have all these synth bands. Have you, have you seen Synth Britannia? No. I it's don't one think of my so. favourite BBC Four documentaries. It has loads of great little bits of footage of JG Ballard going down the West Way and stuff like that. They are brilliant at those BBC yeah. Four, they do do them really well. Synth Britannia makes you go. It's a bit like when you talk about, you know, George Clinton stuff. And I think, man, I should be listening to that. But as an eight-year-old, I was listening to Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds. No one would believe that. She had an imagine measurably spirit of her own. And you go, ah! I mean, I love Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds. And, and there's the great, oh, man, there's uh, Trunk Records re-released this fantastic, uh, it's not called Galactic Terror. A guy who just made his own, in his bedroom in Hull, made a kind of uh, concept album about, and it's really, really great. But we'll find out. Uh, Trent's not listening now, but if he does, he'll, he'll, he'll be able to look it up. Um, so this future, you know, I want to end really with J.G. Ballard seems to be the author at the end of the 70s where whether it's Cabaret Voltaire whether it's uh, you know Joy Division all of these you know that that his this this it's not the even Buggles really... even no one no one quite thinks oh. about how much the Buggles were influenced by Ballard but absolutely they were yeah yeah no um, it, it's one of those things where you know as I was talking about with the different ways that you know people were grappling with 
the encroaching future, the idea of futurism, weighing uh, this idealism against this kind of grimmer or more, more pessimistic view of where we were going as a society with technology in particular. Um, Ballard's work, even though most of the Ballard work that was influencing the post-punks had come out at least 10, if not more years prior to that, began to supersede, and Philip K. Dix too, began to really supersede the influence of some of those uh, slightly earlier authors, as we were talking about, Isamoff, uh, uh, Arthur C. Clarke, and so forth. What really is amazing isn't just the fact that these artists were able to find ways to interpret some of these um, more five-minute-in-the-future type of uh, ideas that, that people like Ballard and and Dick were writing about, it was the fact that with synthesizers, drum machines, sequencers, all this technology becoming cheaper, more accessible, more portable, uh, much easier to use, there became a new way to tap into uh, electronic instruments native sound rather than their ability to approximate an acoustic instrument of some kind, to find a way to uh, be more abstract and, uh, and hermetic and alienated about the types of sounds and textures um, as if really, you know, synthesizers and drum machines were more uh, just these kind of futuristic noise units rather than something that in any way had to do with an acoustic drum kit or a piano of any kind. So as that began to filter more in to uh, in the music scene, and in particular with people who had maybe just cut their teeth musically by playing punk rock, you know, you think it's easy to play punk, you know, try playing synth pop where you're, oh, you basically need one finger. You don't even need to know a chord. And you had this open, uh, this open door into a realm where music no longer had to even react against rock and roll like punk rock had, where you had the ability to completely um, start over or even an offer an alternate present, an alternate reality of what pop music looked like or could sound like. But the the fact that technology by the end of the 70s, um, in stark difference to how it seemed at the end of the 60s, was something that seemed might limit and dehumanize uh, and alienate us uh, from each other, estrange us from society, estrange us from ourselves, um, th and might turn us into mere functions of it rather than the other way around, that those ideas, and those are both very uh, Dickian and Ballardian ideas, that those ideas found the perfect sonic expression in... Uh, not all post-punk, because uh, of course not all post-punk use synthesizers, but more the synth-wielding uh, uh, end of, of the post-punk spectrum. And that's, you know, those are many of the groups that were gathered together at the Futurama Festival, uh, as I write about in the book. And it having the fact not only that all these groups were gathered, so many of the prominent ones were gathered together in one place, it's that the festival was billed as the world's first science fiction music festival, um, that it was was being recognized as science fiction, as science fiction was being 
you know, directly and and openly associated with what was happening here. And the fact that while it was mostly post-punk artists, Hawkwind was also there, you know. With we, Marquis Smith being very rude to them. Yes, of yes, absolutely. Um, yes. The, uh, we've run out of time, but I would just, what's your, uh, in terms of revelations from uh, now reading around these things, who is the author that you feel you've changed your opinion of an author that perhaps you now you go, I've got quite a few more of that person's work on my shelf. Um, I would say uh, that would probably have to be um, Arthur C. Clarke. So when I got into science fiction as a kid, um, I read tons of those golden age uh, uh, science fiction authors. Um, but Clark always, whenever I tried to read Clark's work, there there was something about it that uh, that there were interesting ideas there. But I they never really drew me in quite as much, especially as someone like Bradbury, of course, who is you know in a way such a folksy storyteller, e- even when he's it's like crystal with... meth, though, isn't he? It's, yes. it's, yeah, he sneaks up on you and yes, give me another. <laughs> and <then he> <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. it's horrifying, isn't it? When you actually see how many, but you know, you look along a shelf and you go, whoa. That's a lot. I'm always intrigued by there are certain people. Harlan Ellison would be another one who their ability just to perpetually generate stories and not repeat themselves. Like Philip K. Dick, I love. But Philip K. Dick, there's a certain point where you go, he's writing approximately the same book Mm. of paranoia and about reality. I enjoy going into each one of those things. Whereas Bradbury, you go and Ellison, you go, whoa, whoa, this is so many different. Where does that incredible fertility of imagination come from? Ballard is another example of someone who seems to be refining the same idea yeah. over and over as he goes along with no complaints uh, on my part because I think that um, in a way that that fits his writing and his ideas more than anything else, the fact that it seemed to be him building continuously and that really in so many of his books, the, the protagonists are interchangeable. Um, they're kind of like these these blank, numb uh, people who are caught up in uh, what is happening around them and are, are kind of vessels yeah. or avatars for for uh, for this kind of blankness. Um, and I, even though Ballard is someone whose work I I already love and enjoy, I think I got a different, slightly different appreciation for his work too um, after having. Uh, read this book. Um, the the ironic thing is, you know, J.G. Ballard hated rock and roll music. Like you could, he completely, you know, if any of these artists thought, oh, maybe it'll be like Michael Moorcock and Hawkwind, <laughs> like maybe I'll write this song based on J.G. Ballard's work, and J.G. Ballard will hear it and he'll want to, like, you know, of course, Ballard. <laughs> well, it's the classic. Maybe I'll be the film director who adapts yeah. an Alan Moore that Alan will love. Yeah. Oh, not that this did time. not yeah. work yeah. out. Uh, Natalie, for, for you, do you have, is, is there one author in terms of returning to ideas where you think, I can keep going, but I don't mind the fact they're just reinventing and reinventing because I, I mean, that's what I think it builds, doesn't it? Each time it's a little bit. Yeah, I think for me, it's probably Heinlein. I've always really liked him and um, I haven't, haven't he's one of those writers who I kind of think oh when I'm ill he's who I retreat to you go oh I don't feel well I'm not equal to must need some proper highlight <laughs> so yes I'm I'm aiming not to be ill but were I to be that's where I would be going libertarianism is your cure what it a lovely, turns out yeah turns out um 
Thank you very much for coming. Uh, thank you, Natalie, Anytime. for playing the part of, of Josie Long, which you'll be playing. Jason, by the time this goes out, in fact, you'll finish your UK tour, I think, because you've only got about a week left, haven't you? So, uh, Strange Stars is out now, uh, and it's uh, yeah, it's it's. it's uh, we should have talked more about Hawkwind. Is such a great, you know, Lemmy his his problems with the fact that he found that they what they were taking compared, you know, the hallucinogens versus speed meant there could never be a meeting of minds on stage. <laughs> The uh, I highly recommend Lemmy's White Line Fever as well as a book to read. Uh, so, Strange Stars out now. Natalie, what's your next book out? Uh, my new book is out in May 19 and it is called A Thousand Ships. Brilliant. And it is just a picture of a thousand ships that you've drawn at home, isn't yes, it? Yes, it is. Yeah, I've done my absolute best. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've done uh, my very best drawings. Thank you very much for everyone who supports us via Patreon. Uh, please continue to do so. If you don't support us via Patreon, it's very useful because we're trying to... There's a lot of other stuff on the Cosmic Shambles site that you can see, uh, listen to uh, short films. We've done a documentary about Richard Feynman because BBC didn't want to do a documentary about Richard Feynman on the 100th anniversary of his birth. Because uh, who wants so, to see that, Robin? Yeah. Who could ever want to see that? Who would be interested in that? Who would want... I mean, gee, he's, he's the, only the second most important physicist of the 20th century, and we did a documentary of him 15 years ago. Thanks. Yeah, everyone so, will remember that. No, yeah. they won't. No, they won't, people at the BBC. Um, so, uh, please support us. Uh, Josie will be back uh, sometime or other. She's such a flippity gibbet since she found love and a baby. Um, and goodbye. <laughs> Thanks very much for listening. Thanks again to our Patreon supporters. Remember to bring a donation uh, for the Trussell Trust Food Bank Collection. If you're coming to Hammersmith on Saturday, we will most likely see uh, a few of you there. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. (laughs) 